All right, good evening, everyone. Let us, let us begin. So, Baruch Hashem, it's an incredible schos. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, let's try that again. Good evening, everyone. Let us begin. So we are, Baruch Hashem, have the incredible zechos and opportunity to spend a few moments here just a little bit more than a week away from the Yomtev of Shavuos in an effort to try to really prepare for this Yomtev and in an effort to really try to understand what it is that we are trying to accomplish. Before we get into this, I just want to begin by thanking the sponsors of tonight's share to thank Hannah Miriam Selig, for dedicating the sharing commemoration of the yard site of her father, Yitzchak Shimon ben Yoshua Aryeh Zichron Livracha. We hope that in the merit of our Tamator, the Neshama will have an Aliyah and the family a Nechama. And to thank Eli and Devar Kohn for dedicating, for dedicating this year tonight with appreciation to the entire Kehillah. So with that, let us begin. So when we know that when we come to Yom Tov of Shavuos, of course, the cornerstone of this Yom Tov is Kabbalah Satora is the idea is the idea that thousands of years ago we stood by the base of Mount Sinai and we wholly unequivocally accepted okay the Torah Kedosha. Ah, okay we accept the Torah Kedosha. and of course again the idea of Kabbalah Satora the idea of standing by the base of Mount Sinai accepting Torah Shebechsav, Torah Shebaalpeh the written law the oral law forms the essence of this Yom Tiv. but the truth is there has to be more to Shavuos. For the simple reason, and again, this is not our topic tonight, what I'll just point out to you is how strange of a Yom Tiv Shavuos really is. First of all, the fact that there is fundamental debate as to when actual Kabbalah's HaTorah was. When did we receive the Torah? Did we receive the Torah on the 6th of Sivan or on the 7th of Sivan? That detail is in and of itself subject to dispute. Not only that, where, what, where, what was the location of Kabbalah Satora? Where did it take place? Har Sinai. Where is Har Sinai? We don't know. We don't know. Such a fascinating idea. So the date of Kabbalah Satora remains shrouded in ambiguity, subject to debate. The location of Kabbalah Satora, of Sinaitic revelation, is shrouded in debate, which is so incredibly profound. Because Shavuos marks the event, which is perhaps the most, not perhaps, is the most important event in our people's history. We are who we are because of Torah. Torah is what endows us with national identity. Torah is what endows us with individual identity. Torah endows us with destiny. Torah gives us purpose and direction. Without Torah, we have nothing. And isn't it strange that the very thing that makes us who we are, yet again, is shrouded in all of this ambiguity? So the truth is, there are many reasons. The ambiguity is by design, right? The debate about the date and the debate about the location is intentional. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted it to be that way for a variety of purposes. But I think it's also done in order to get us to think a little bit more about the essence of this Yom Tiv, I'll point out something else to you. What's different about Shavuos than any other Yom Tiv? What's different? No mitzvah. Excellent. Shavuos does not have a unique mitzvah associated with it, right? Rosh Hashanah has shofar. Yom Kippur has fast. 
Sukkis has the Sukkah and the Dalad Minim. Even the rabbinic holidays, Chanukah as the Menorah, Purim, Megillah, Shalach, Manis, Pesach, Matzah. We come to Shavuos, and what do we have? Right, cheesecake, right, very good, right, excellent, right, wonderful. And I want to, ta- I want to thank Shani Tapper, our executive director, for the beautiful cheesecakes that everyone is receiving as part of tonight's cheer. Shani, thank you for everything you do. So, okay, cheesecakes. Contrary to popular opinion, cheesecake is not a mitzvah. It's not a mitzvah. Again, there's a whole discussion in general. Again, it's not a topic either, but it happens to be a fascinating discussion about the role of dairy, the role of milchiks on Shavuos. In fact, it's a hotly contested debate, many holding that, in fact, one should not have dairy meals over the course of, this is a hotly contested issue in my home, right? one should not have dairy meals over the course of Shavuos because Shavuos is a yomtiv. Yomtiv, there's a mitzvah of meat and wine. The whole dairy piece has to do with a certain level of preparation for Matatora, but again, not our topic. But I'll point out to you how fascinating it is that the yomtiv itself, which celebrates Torah, doesn't even have a unique mitzvah associated with it. And why is that? Why is that? Why is that the yomtiv of Torah doesn't have a specific religious or ritual rite associated with it? And I think there are many answers, but one of the answers is because Shavuos represents an opportunity to look inward. Shavuos represents, you see, external mitzvos are an incredible thing. But external mitzvos are not an ends, they're a means. All mitzvos are not an ends, they're a means. The point of a mitzvah is to connect me with Hashem. The point of a mitzvah is to connect me with myself. And perhaps the glaring absence of external mitzvos on the Yom Tov of Shavuos is because the avodah, the, 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 our mission on the Yom Tov of Shavuos is to look inward, is to contemplate, is to think, is to really delve within ourselves. But what is it that we are supposed to accomplish? What is it that we're supposed to think about? What is the avodah? You see, the reason why we have to answer this question is a very simple one. You see, in life, in life, whenever you have to undergo an experience, right? You have an experience ahead of you. What's the most important thing you want to be able to answer at the, when you get out of that experience? Was it successful? Was it meaningful, right? A person goes through, what's, what's my job? What's, what's the job? It's, it's what, what's today? Tuesday. It's Tuesday, right? Tuesday's winding down. What's the question I'm going to ask myself before I go to sleep tonight? Was this a successful day? Was this a successful day? And that's the question a Jew has to ask themselves each and every day. And when I go through a yomtiv, was this a successful yomtiv? Well, the only way to measure success is if you have a metric, right? What, what, am, what am I measuring success against? Right? How, do I, how do I determine if I had a successful day? How do you determine if you had a successful day? You accomplished, but how do you know if you accomplished, right? The way you know you have a successful day is at the beginning of the day, you create the, th- you write the list of the things you want to accomplish. I don't mean just like, I have to do this, I have to do that. I mean like, you write for yourself, today, Tuesday, here's what I want to accomplish. Here's what I want to do. Here's how I want to transform. Here's how I want to elevate myself. I write that. And if by Tuesday night, I could look at those things and I said, okay, maybe I didn't get through all of it, but I got through a lot of it, Baruch Hashem, successful day. So I want a successful Shavuos. A successful Shavuos is one in which somehow it's not about anything external. 
It's all about something internal. So what's the metric of success? So I want to show you something amazing because I think the answer to this question is actually found in Megillas Rus. We know that on the Yom Tov of Shavuos, we read Megillas Rus. We're all familiar with the story of Rus, the Moabite princess, who converts, joins the ranks of the Jewish people, marries a man by the name of Machlon. Ultimately, again, he passes away. She goes back with her mother-in-law, Rus, to Kinaan. The whole story, she's poor, has nothing, survives off gleanings. Again, end of the story, end of the story, she marries Boaz. Baruch Hashem, they have children, a son, and ultimately that is the beginning of the Davidic line. To be clear, I've mentioned this, I think I mentioned this every preemptive year. Remember, Megillas Rus is not a, and everyone lived happily ever after story. It's not because Rus gets married to Boaz and is widowed soon after. She's widowed twice in her lifetime. So she is a, a, once again a young widow. So it's not a everyone lives happily ever after story, but it's a story of profound meaning. But the question is, why do we go ahead and read it on the Yom Tov of Shavuos? So the truth is there are a variety of different answers given to this question on the most basic level. The story of Rus is the story of a convert. And the truth is when the Jewish people stood at Mount Sinai at Har Sinai, there was a national conversion. Now, Rus was not the first convert, but she was perhaps one of the most high-profile converts. And therefore, again, because her story is the, first of all, Rus's story of conversion is also very important because many of the halachos that pertain to conversion are gleaned from Megillas Rus. They're gleaned from this story. So just like Rus underwent her conversion at Har Sinai, we underwent the conversion as well. Rabbi Yitzhak Abreditchev has a beautiful approach as well, but we'll save that for a different time. Take a look in the Magid Avram, number two on your sheet. So the Magid Avram writes, the Rus b'Shavuos, why do we read the book of Rus, Megillas Rus on Shavuos? He writes over here, Ma inyon Rus shenikres bizman matan because the story of Rus teaches us a very important lesson. To teach us something amazing. That just like Rus's path to Yiddishkeit was paved with difficulty and challenge, so the path to success in Torah, the path to success in spirituality, is also paved with difficulty and challenge. Now, to be honest, this is not like the best selling point for Judaism, right? But, but, it's unequivocally true. And we've spoken about this many times. Sometimes the greatest disservice we do ourselves and our children as well, is we create this expectation that life is supposed to be easy, right? That somehow, somehow, the way the world is supposed to work is everything should fall into place. And the truth is, think about it. Who do you know in life who has a life that everything fell into place? And by the way, even if you're thinking about someone who you think has it all together and everything fell into place, that's only because you don't know the full story of their life. No one has a life where all the pieces fall into place. Everyone has some level of disrepair. It's just a question of how intense or how acute your state of disrepair is. So therefore, says the Magen Avram, the story of Rus is the story, it's the, it's the playbook, it's, it's the blueprint for spiritual success. How does Rus, Rus's success comes on the heels of incredible challenge, overwhelming challenge, 
overwhelming difficulty, personal setback, personal tragedy, says the Magen Avram, as difficult as a lesson as it may be to hear, that's the story of spiritual success. Spiritual success only comes on the heels of adversity, only comes on the heels of difficulty. It never just falls into place. And by the way, what an important lesson for us. Because all too often in life, when things don't go according to plan, we often think like, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? Now, sometimes, you're right, sometimes I encounter challenge because I made poor decisions, or I did not properly plan ahead, or I did not think things through. That could happen. And sometimes people encounter challenges just because that's the nature of life. That's the nature of life. We have to get rid of this expectation that things are supposed to be easy, that things are supposed to always be pleasant, that the birds are always chirping, the sky is always blue, and everything is fantastic. Because if you live with that expectation, one is setting themselves up for a lifetime of disillusioned disappointment. But if I accept the fact that life has so much beauty, so many incredible moments, so many wonderful things, but yes, a healthy dose of adversity and challenge and setback, that's a proper, healthy, balanced view of the human condition. And therefore, says the Magen Avram, we know how you read the Megillas Rus. You read the story. Think about it just, we all, we all know the story of Rus. Right? What, what's, what goes through your mind when you read Megillas Rus? What's, what's, the, what's the sentiment that keeps going through your mind? Right? What's the matter with this lady? Right? What are you doing? What is the matter with you? First of all, you're a princess. You're a mobile princess. Go home. Go, what's the matter with you? Right? First of all, again, you lost your husband at a young age. Okay, go home. You have a mother-in-law, right? A mother-in-law. Granted, again, she gets along with her mother-in-law, which is like fantastic, Baruch Hashem, right? So, right? But Naomi, let's be clear, Naomi is not the life of the party, right? To be very clear, remember again, when they come back to Eretz Yisrael, when they come back to Canaan, Right? And everyone says, oh, is that Naomi? No one even recognizes her. Is that Naomi? Remember what she says? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, bitter. That's not a person you want to hang out with. Right? That, that's not the person you want to keep company with. Right? So the whole time you're reading Miguel Asus, you're wondering, like, what's the matter with you? Like, it, it's almost like, are, are you looking to live like under a black cloud? She gets to Canaan. She gets to Canaan. No food. No food. You have to go begging. And so it goes on through, uh, through our minds. Like, why? Well, we'll come back to the why in just a moment. But says the Magen Avram, it's so important. Because Rus reaches the finish line at the end of the story. But it was a really difficult marathon. It was a really difficult struggle. Every single step of the way was laced with adversity, difficulty, setback, and tragedy. Now, halavai, none of us should have to experience a life like Rus. But says the Magen Avram, everyone has some piece of that. If you want spiritual success, if you're looking for spiritual success in this world, the road to that is always paved with adversity. Then, of course, the Yushami says in number three, the reason we read Megillas Rus on Shavuos is because Hamelech David Niftar B'Shavuos, an amazing passage in the Jerusalem time Yushami. Shavuos is the yard site of David Hamelech, of King David. And therefore, again, who was King David's altar baba, right? Who, who was his great-great-grandmother? Rus. And therefore, again, on the yard site of David Hamelech, 
we read the story of King David's origins, right? The Davidic story doesn't begin with the birth of David. The Davidic story begins with the story of Ros. So what you begin to see is something very interesting, which is that somehow, someway, the story of Ros, of course, is connected to Shavuos, but I think what it also means is that embedded in the story of Ros is also the message of Shavuos. Or I should say, embedded in the book of Ros is somehow our avoda, our, our task, our job, our mission for the umtav of Shavuos. And I want to show you something amazing. And what's even more amazing about this is the Gemara's I'm going to share with you, we just did in Dafyomi two days ago. Literally just did this Gemara. And as I was preparing for this year, I had something else prepared. And then I saw this Gemara and I, I was so startled by it. Take a look at number four. We're going to get a little bit technical for just a moment. The Mishnah says as follows. Amoni umo'avi asurim the isuran isra'olam. So just to give you a little bit of context, the Mishnah here is talking about the halachos of conversion. And speaking about the fact that there are certain nations that have certain conversion limitations. So for example, the nations of Ammon and Moab, they're permitted to convert. They're permitted to convert, but they are never permitted to marry within the general Jewish people. The only people they're permitted to marry are other converts. Now what's interesting about, and by the way, that restriction remains upon them for all future generations. It never stops. So they're Jewish, but they, are, they have a restricted marriage pool. What's of course very unique about this is remember, Ammon and Moab are who? Are who? They're our cousins, which is interesting. Because remember again, Ammon and Moab are descendants from Lot. Right? Lot was Avram Avinu's nephew. So we're descendants from Avraham. Ammon and Moab are descended from Lot. We're cousins. We're cousins. Yet Ammon and Moab, there is a perpetual restriction. Again, they can become Jewish, but they're limited with who they can marry. Now there's an exception to this. Aval nekivosehem mutaros miyad. But this prohibition only applies to men from Ammon and Moab. Women from Ammon and Moab are permitted to marry and are allowed or and essentially have immediate integration. So a woman who converts from Ammon and Moab is, is a regular gioris, a regular convert, but it means that her children are totally part, right? There's, there's no restrictions on them. But a man from Ammon and Moab who converts, forever marked, forever marked, and to a certain degree marginalized, Jewish, but restricted marriage pool. Okay, what is this halacha all about? So take a look at number five. So let me give you a little bit of background first. The Gemara explains, here's, the, here's why. The Torah itself says why the Ammoni and Moavi can't be, become fully integrated. And the Torah says, because When we came out of Egypt, when we came out of Egypt, they did not come out to greet us with bread and water. They're our cousins. They're our cousins. And when they saw us, a fledgling nation in the desert, three and a half million people in the desert, again, in the desert, it's helpful to have some food and water. Your own mishpacha doesn't come out to help you. It's such a profound lack of chesed. It's just such a profound lack of humanity, such a profound lack of just normative human behavior that they are forever marginalized. We, we do not want them within the general population. You could convert, you could convert, but you live on the periphery. So the Gemara says something amazing. In biblical times, the laws of modesty dictated 
that who would have come out to greet the Jewish people with bread and water? Who would have come out? The men and not the women. Biblical modesty, the women would not have come out to go out and greet a foreign nation. And therefore the Gemara says that's why, that's why the restriction, right? The restriction, the marital restriction on Ammon and Moab converts is only on the men, not on the women. Okay, a fascinating halacha. Now take a look at number five. Listen to this. So the Gemara goes on. Now the truth is, where was this halacha first popularized? Where was it popularized? It was popularized by the Beisdin, the high court, the Jewish court of Shmuel Hanavi, the prophet Shmuel. Amoni v'lo Amonis, Moavi v'lo Moab. He said the restriction only applies to the male members of Amon, male members of Moab, but not to the women. Okay, beautiful. Now, let's take a step back here. In Megillas Ros, in Megillas Ros, there is a fundamental tension that underlies the entire story. And it's a tension that if you don't know to look for it, you could easily read the story a million times and never know that it's there. And it's the fundamental tension of whether or not Rus was Jewish. We know Rus converts. We know Rus, even her conversion itself is nuanced because there's a whole discussion. Did she convert before she married her husband, her Jewish husband, her first husband? Did she convert before she married Machlon? Well, that's not stated explicitly in the text. It sounds like when did Rus's conversion actually occur? When did it occur? With Naomi, right? When Naomi is trying to convince her, don't come with me, don't come with me. And Rus says, Amech Ami, Elokayich Elokai, your nation is my nation, your God is my God. It appears that that is where Rus's real conversion took place. But the underlying tension is that people were saying, Rus, you're not Jewish, you're not Jewish. In other words, you're not Jewish. The Torah says that Ammon and Moab are not permitted to go ahead and join the assembly of the Jewish people. So remember again, all the Torah says is Ammon and Moab. Torah doesn't make any reference to men, women. Torah just says Ammon and Moab, you can't join the general assembly of the Jewish people. So this whole time when Rus is in Canaan, there's a little bit of a push. You ever wonder to yourself, Naomi comes back, right? Just, just, just a moment. This is why some of these stories that we know so well, sometimes you don't think about them in a critical way. Naomi comes back, comes back to Canaan. Now remember, when Naomi left at the beginning of Megillah's Rose, what did she leave with? What did she leave with? A husband. What else? Two sons. What else? Money. And lots of it. And now she comes back just a chapter later. No husband. No sons, no money. You would have thought that what would happen when she gets back to Beis Lechem? What happens when she goes back to Bethlehem to Beis Lechem? What would have happened? Right? Somebody would have showed up, I don't know, a basket of cookies, a challah Shabbos, right? An Avas Yisrael package, something. Nothing. 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 No, no one reaches out. No one reaches out. No one helps. How do we know that no one reaches out? Because where do Rus and Naomi get food from? Where do they get food from? Rus goes out to beg. I mean, she doesn't actively beg. She goes to the field to take the gleanings for the poor, that are left for the poor people. Isn't that incredible? A woman who was a cornerstone of society at the beginning of the Megillah comes back. Not one person reaches out to her. 
Not one call, not one email, not one text, not one Shabbos invitation, nothing, nothing. Why is that? So the truth is the simple answer is that people did not like Naomi and her husband Elimelech. Why? Because remember again, why did they leave at the beginning of the Megillah? Because there was a famine. You see, Elimelech and Rus made a calculated decision. They did not want to dispense with their wealth. And they knew that if they stayed behind in Canaan during the times of a regional famine, they would be forced to share their wealth and support their Jewish brothers and sisters. They made a conscious decision that they wanted to preserve their wealth and therefore they relocated to Moab. Okay, to Moab. So now Naomi comes back, you left. You left when we needed you. You left when you could have been of assistance. You left when you could have really helped. You turned your back on us. People aren't kind when you turn your back on them. We'd like to say, be better, be better, right? Forgive, move on. They were hurt. People were hurt. And so they gave Naomi the cold shoulder. But there's another reason. is because people weren't sure what to do about this Rus girl, right? What's, what's, what's going on with her? She's a Moabite convert. Well, one second, the Torah says that we don't really accept Moabite converts. So what's going on? That's, that's the nuance. That's the nuance. And by the way, that's why even Boaz, you remember again the story where Boaz, right? The whole, we actually think we studied it last year or two years ago, where we studied the whole episode where Rus snuck into the granary at night and waited for Boaz, right? And Boaz goes ahead and says, okay, I'm going to go up to the gate. I'm going to go up to the gate of the city and we'll see what's going to be. Part of the reason why at the gate was that was the basin. That's where the court used to sit. Part of what Boaz was going to investigate was, what's her status? What's her Jewish status? Is this girl Jewish? Is she not Jewish? So look at back at number five. So the Gemara says, but one second. Says the Gemara, one second. This halachic matter that we accept women from the nations of Ammon and Moab as complete converts, complete converts with no restrictions or limitations. This halacha goes back to the times of the prophet Shmuel, much earlier, prophet Shmuel. So one second, if it goes back to the basin of the prophet Shmuel, and even early, Gemara says even earlier than that, then why is there so much ambiguity about this halacha during the story of Rus? Right? It's this ambiguity. What do we do with a Moabite woman? Is she forever precluded from joining the General Assembly of the Jewish people? Is she treated differently? And no one knows. No one knows. But yet the Gemara discusses it with such clarity. And the halacha actually goes way back when. So what happens? So take a look at number six. I want to show you something amazing. V'chidushi Harim, the Ger Rebbe, says something amazing. Lama rak az nitzchat so I want to point something out that's incredible. One of the most important things about Megillah's Rus is that morning, that morning, after, right, the night Rus snuck into the granary, that morning Boaz goes to the Beisdin and Boaz says, Maranam v'rabanan. What's the halacha with a Moabite woman who converts? And it was there that day that they caught, we're not the halacha, the halacha they spoke about a little bit, the halacha is, she's accepted. She's fully accepted, fully integrated, a complete convert with no restrictions. And they codified the halacha right then and there. Asks the Chidushe Harim, what happened? Why was it that the halacha was on the books, the halacha was forgotten, 
and then it was reinstituted. By the way, I just want to point out how important the reinstitution was. Who wrote Megillas Ros? Who wrote Megillas Ros? Shmuel Hanavi wrote Megillas Ros. Shmuel wrote, do you know why Shmuel wrote Megillas Ros? I mean, not because everybody loves a good story. Shmuel wrote Megillas Ros because David HaMelech had many detractors. And remember, his detractors seized on two major things. The first thing they seized on was, we spoke about this so many times throughout our Tilim Shirim. Maybe not enough times. Batsheva. Right, Batsheva. The whole episode of Batsheva was fuel for David HaMelech's detractors. They said he was an adulterer. They said he was a sinner. He's forsaken by God. All these terrible things. The second thing they seized upon, he's not really Jewish. David HaMelech is not really Jewish? Yeah, his grandmother is a Moabite convert. He not, when they say he wasn't a Jewish, it's not literal. He's Jewish, but he's certainly not allowed to be king. Right? He's not allowed to be king. Right? That, that's for sure. That's how they sought to discredit David HaMelech. Shmuel Hanavi writes Megillah Suros as a way of certifying the genealogy of King David. That's, that's the reason for the entire book. It's all here to certify his, that he is legitimate. He's legitimately Jewish and a legitimate monarch. That's why it's here. So ask the Chidushim, I don't understand. I don't understand. The halacha was on the books. On the books. Since Matan Torah. It was part of Torah Shabbat Peh. It was part of the verbal tradition, the oral tradition of Yiddishkeit. That you accept female Moabite converts. And then it was forgotten, seemingly forgotten, and reinstituted or rediscovered in the book of Rus. So ask the Chidushim, why? Why? Why was it forgotten this entire time? Look what he writes. Ella, here we go. So says the Chidushim something amazing. Do you know what the profundity of the story of Rus is? The profundity of the story of Rus is a woman who was driven to accomplish something and did not pay attention to the personal cost. In other words, says the Kedusha of something amazing. You think Rus didn't know why people gave her the cold shoulder? You think Rus didn't know why people weren't reaching out to her mother-in-law? You think Rus didn't know that people, whenever she walked by, murmured about her that maybe she's not, she knew it, she knew it. But she was solely dedicated to creating and forging this relationship with Hashem. You see, says the Chidush Yarim something amazing. The profundity of the story of Rus is lies in the fact that the halacha, that a female Moabite convert is permitted into the assembly of the Jewish people, was not yet codified on the books. That's the greatness of this story. Because if that halacha was codified, okay, she knew she could convert. She knew she'd be accepted. And so she put in the time, she put in the effort to reach the finish line. But the greatness of Rus was the halacha wasn't codified at the start of the story. The greatness of Rus was she did not know how her story would end. But what she knew, what she knew was that she desperately wanted to attach herself to Torah. She desperately wanted to attach herself to Ruchnius. She desperately wanted to attach herself to Hashem. That's what she wanted. And how did she want to do it? She wanted to do it through the vehicle of Judaism. I but Rus, maybe you're not going to be accepted. So be it. So be it. 
Life is not about being accepted. Life is not about being liked. And life is not about being popular. Life is about getting the job done. Life is about accomplishing your goals and aspirations. Life is about finding meaning, finding destiny, grabbing hold of it and doing everything in your power to actualize and to maximize it. And says the Chidushe Harim, that is the power of Megillas Rus. It is the story of a woman who had a clear objective, a clear goal, and she would let nothing stand in her way. I but Ross, what's going to happen? Who are you going to marry? What's going to be? Are you going to be accepted? If you asked Ross all those questions, you know what she would respond? Static. That's static. I don't know. I can't control those things. I can't control acceptance, not acceptance. I can't control those things. I know what I have to do. And I have to have tunnel vision to accomplish it. I know what needs to get done, and I've set my mind to it. And you know, again, sometimes in the pursuit of your goals and objectives, there, is, there are collateral costs. There are collateral costs. You know, pursuing your dreams comes at the expense of other dreams, right? Just like, you know, if you choose teeth flashics, you can't have ice cream for dessert. It's just not a punishment. It's just the result. So sometimes when you go ahead and you choose a derech in life, you choose a path, you can't, you see, this goes out to what I was saying before, Whoever made up the phrase, have your cake and eat it too, he wasn't Jewish or she wasn't Jewish, right? Because it's not true. You can't have your cake and eat it too. But what you could do is, you could have your cake. You could have, what you can do is, you could choose which cake you want to have, right? You could choose which dream you want to pursue. You could, dream, dream, you could choose which path you want to go down. But just understand, when you choose one path, that comes at the expense of a different path. Right? When you make decisions in life and you go on a particular kivun, a particular direction, that comes at the expense of the other directions. Rus knew all of this. And says the Chidushan, the greatness of the story is she knew what her decision would cost her. She understood it. But she made it anyway. Because in her mind, however she arrived at this decision, but she decided that finding this relationship with Hashem in the context of being part of the Jewish people was more important than anything else in her life. She understood the potential collateral loss. She understood the sacrifices that, would, that that would entail, potentially entail. But she chose that decision anyway. She was determined to do what needed to get done and remained unfazed by the challenges. And I'll show you why this is absolutely incredible. Because if you take a look, and again, this is all the same Gemara Meseches Yevamas that we just had literally just a few days ago in Dafyomi. If you take a look at number seven, there's another amazing Gemara. The Gemara says, listen to this. Darash Rava. I put the English translation here as well. Rava, Rava Darshan. Rava explained. What's the meaning of the Pasuk? Pitachta Rai. Now this is a Pasuk from Tehillim. David HaMelech writes, it's actually in source number eight on your sheet. Beautiful Pasuk in Tehillim. Ana Hashem, please Hashem. I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have opened up my chains. Opened up my chains. So ask the Gimara, back to number seven. Ask the Gimara, Darash Rava, my What does it mean you opened up my chains? 
Why chains plural? Well, what, what are the chains? So listen to this. There were two chains that were on me that you opened up. What were the two chains? Who were the two chains? David says, my grandmother, Rus, who was a Moabite, and amazingly enough, David's daughter-in-law, one of Shlomo's wives, was a woman by the name of Naama, the Ammonis, from Ammon. So David HaMelech says, there are these two women in my life. My grandmother, great-grandmother Rus, who's from Moab, my daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law, Naama, who is from Ammon, who's from Ammon. And David HaMelech says, ultimately, again, Hashem, you opened up my chains. In other words, these two situations could have destroyed the growth of my family. If people would have said, Rus can't join the Jewish people. Naama can't join the Jewish people. So Hashem, you, you, so to speak, you unlocked my chains with the drusha, with the understanding that the restriction on Ammon and Moab only applies to the men, not the women. You unshackled me. But it goes on. Darash Rava. Rava goes on and he says, My dixiv rabos asiso ata Hashem. So now David Amal quotes another Pasik. What's the other Pasik? Pasik says, Hashem, you have done so many wonderful things for us, wondrous things for us. And your thoughts are always directed towards us. Why us? It doesn't say, David Amal is not saying, Hashem, your thoughts are always directed towards me, but rather David says, Hashem, your thoughts are always directed towards us. Who's the us? Listen to this image. David HaMelech was holding his enakal. He was holding his grandson, a little boy by the name of Rechavam. Rechavam is the son of Shlomo and Naama HaAmonis. Rechavam becomes the king. After Shlomo dies, his son Rechavam, so it's David, Shlomo, Rechavam. So David HaMelech is holding little baby Rechavam in his arms. He's holding his grandson in his arms. And he says, I, little Rechavam, alai va'alecha ne'emru shtei mikraos halalu. These psukim, these psukim, pitachta limoserai, you have unshackled me from my chains. And Hashem, your thoughts are always about us. David says, you know who these two psukim refer to, little Rechavam? They refer to you and to me. They refer to us because we're not that Hashem, quote unquote, unshackled us. Ultimately, we'd both be discredited. Were it not that Hashem's thoughts were always upon us, our detractors would have destroyed us. A moving Gemara. But let me just show you one piece and we're going to bring it all together. Remember, the converse, David HaMelech, just take a stand. David HaMelech is holding his little baby grandson, which is such a beautiful imagery by itself. And he says the Pasuk, go back now to number eight or go forward to number eight. The first passage David HaMelech quotes, which is what I want to focus on. David HaMelech says, Hashem ki ani avdecha, You have opened up my chains. So the Gemara says, what are the chains we're referring to? What are the chains? So the chains refer to Rus and to Nama. 
the chains that are being referenced is like this stranglehold that the ambiguity of Ammon and Moab, are they accepted or are they not accepted? The men, the women, the clarity that it's the men who are marginalized, but the women who are accepted, says the Gemara, this, this undid our chains. But what's the Pashab shot? Right? When Dalai says, God, you've opened up my chains. What, what is, what, okay, so the Gemara gives this interpretation, but on the simple level, what chains is David Amalek referring to? What chains is he referring to? Look at the Radaki number nine. And this is incredible. David, you were never in chains. You were never in chains. So what chains are you referring to? When you say that God freed you, what chains are you referring to? Darah says, you're right, in life, I was never in chains. But sometimes, I felt like I was in chains. I was never actually in chains, but sometimes at the end of the day, I felt like I was in chains. What David HaMelech is referring to over here is something absolutely amazing. That there are times in life when we want to accomplish something, but yet for some reason, we just feel we can't. Now, if someone asks you, Sunu, who's holding you back? What's the answer? Who's holding you back? I mean, I guess no one's really holding me back, right? I guess if I'm honest, I'm holding myself back. Those are the chains that David Melch is referring to. And we're all shackled to that in different ways at different stages in life. You see, often what happens is when there are things we want to accomplish or things we want to do or something, or, or maybe some element of self-actualization, if you ask me why I haven't accomplished what I want to accomplish, the reflexive reaction is, reflexive reaction is, Right? Blame. Blame. Deflect. Deflect. It's not my fault. I'm going to tell, I could tell you whose fault it is. Right? Do you want, I could give you the whole list of people who are at fault. I can give you alphabetical order, chronological order, severity order. I'm going to tell you everyone who is at fault for why my life has not gone the way it's supposed to go, for my family, for why my career, for my this. I'll tell you everyone. And I'll even tell you the specific role that they played in why things are the way they are. Now again, does it happen in life that there are outside people who have a contributing influence to the events of my life? Of course. But at the end of the day, the buck of your life stops with you. At the end of the day, who you are and what you are and the type of life you are going to lead is your decision and your decision only. You see, David Amal, so sometimes we live with the illusion that we're chained. We're chained. Ah, there, there, there's so much I'd like to do. So, so much I want to do. You know, I would just say, I was, I was meeting the other week with a young family who is, who is going to move to Eretz Yisrael. And, and they were talking to me about the whole back and forth, this, that. And you know, it's amazing. I, I, after they left the meeting, I said, I was so inspired. I'm always inspired by, I get to talk about, I feel old enough now that I can talk about young people. Right? So when young people and idealism and they're going and it's incredible. And then I said to myself, so the truth is, I could go. <laughs> I could go. Oh, no, I can't go. Yes, I can. I choose not to. I choose not to. And I go ahead and I justify my choice with a whole variety of things. And by the way, I happen to think they're excellent justifications. I think they're wonderful. I think they're solid. I think they're very good. A lot of them are unfolding right over here in the lot right next door. Right? So again, wonderful justifications. Am I precluded? No. I'm not precluded. I make a decision. So I'm not shackled. I'm not shackled. I make a decision 
to stay where I am. And by the way, the first moment that you have that, that self-awareness and it's real brutal honesty, it hurts. It hurts a lot. But afterwards, it's exceptionally empowering. Because then I realize, okay, you're right. Maybe I'm not where I want to be. But I'm not where I want to be because I made the decision not to be there. No one else made that decision for me. Now again, it raises, now I have to ask myself, why am I making that decision? But at the end of the day, I'm not shackled. I'm really not shackled. I make decisions in life. I make decisions about how I'm going to live. I make decisions about who I'm going to be. I make decisions about the kind of family I'm going to raise. I make the decisions about what I allow to go on in my home. I make the decisions about the people I surround myself with. I make these decisions. I'm not shackled. No one else has control over me. I make them. Now, I want to be clear. That doesn't mean just because I'm not shackled that everything turns out okay. That's always that's what we started with, right? Just because I have the control doesn't mean that everything goes according to plan. We spoke about that. But pitachta limoserai is like when that light bulb goes off and says, I am in control of my life. Not everything, but the important things. The important things like who I'm going to be, what I'm going to be, the life I'm going to lead, the type of relationships I'm going to create, those are my decisions. I am not shackled. And that's the profundity, says the Radak, of Hashem. I discovered I'm free. I'm free. No one enslaves me. Nothing enslaves me. I make my own decisions. And what my life is, is because of the choices I make, I don't make again not underplaying the fact that other people's actions have an impact on my life. But then I decide how I'm going to respond to those actions. I decide what the repercussions are going to be. That's the pitach telemoserai. Pitach telemoserai is the rejection of victimization. I'm not going to live life. See, people enjoy victimization. Sounds like a strange thing to say. But why do people enjoy victimization? Victimization is great. I'm saying that hyperbolically. But why is it great? No responsibility. Not my fault. I'm a victim. I am a victim. I've said this many times. My grandmother, Zechona Levracha, never liked it when people simply referred to her as a survivor. Because a survivor means you serve, that, that really represents somebody else did something, you survived what someone else did to you. She's like, yeah, I survived, but that's not my defining moment. Right? My defining moment is that I got married, I created a family, I built a life, I have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that's an accomplishment. See, pitach is the fundamental repudiation and rejection of victimization. I'm not going to live life feeling like I'm shackled by someone else or something else. I'm going to free myself and recognize I have the power to decide who I'm going to be, what I'm going to be, and the life I'm going to lead. So now listen to this. David HaMelech is going ahead and holding his grandson Rechavam. And he says, little Rechavam, let me sing you a song. Ano Hashem. Right? And the song ends, And although the Gemara doesn't say it explicitly, remember again, this whole Gemara is related to Ammon and Moab. From where did David HaMelech glean the strength to unshackle himself? From where did he glean the strength to go ahead and say, I repudiate and reject victimization. I make my choices in life. Where did that koach come from? And it came from Rus. 
It came from Rus. Because what's, going back to the Chidu Sharim, what's the story of Megillas Rus? Sharim Megillas Rus is a woman who has a vision. Rus has such clarity of vision. And by the way, it's interesting. I don't know why this is, but whenever I think about Rus, right? when you think about Rus, what's the expression? If you close your eyes and you see Rus, what's the expression you see on her face? You ever think about this? I guess I'm the only person that thinks about these things. Right? So, so again, I always imagine Rus, Rus has a smile. She has a smile. And she's walking through the fields. And by the way, I can tell you, I, I know that I'm right. I'll tell you I know that I'm right. Boaz, Boaz, remember again when he comes home from the field. So he sees Rus in the field. And what does he do? He asks, he asks, who is she? Who is she? And by the way, everybody is intrigued by the fact that this much older man is asking about this young girl. Who is she? Okay. So you could say, you could say that maybe she was very beautiful and that caught his attention. That, that's possible. But I will tell you, at least I find, more than beauty catches the eye, happiness catches the eye. You ever come across a person who's just like genuinely happy? Like, you know, like two people like that, right? right? People who are just like really always, I don't mean heavily medicated. I mean like, like really like, like genuinely happy people. They're just happy people. And the truth is, you want to be around those people. Right? That person like always, always a silver lining. Always everything is great. Everything is wonderful, fantastic, effervescent, and always top of the world. Always top of the world. We're drawn to people like that. Because deep down, I want to be like that. Not happening for me. But like, I, I know that I really want to be like that. I've often thought that, again, Rus goes through life with that smile. Through the smile, you're a young widow. Your mother said, call me, your mother said, call me Mara. No one's accepting you. You're pretty much an outcast because Rus had vision. Rus knew what she wanted in life. She knew what she wanted to accomplish. She knew what her life objective was. And the truth is she also knew that the accomplishment of that objective would come with collateral costs. But she was willing to pay them because she had a dream. She had a vision. She had a mission. And she would let nothing stand in her way. So when David HaMelech is holding his little grandson, and he says, my little enikle, just always remember in life, when you feel shackled, and you feel like you can't, and you feel like the victim, and you feel that someone or something has robbed you of your autonomy, Open up your own shackles. No one could open up your shackles except you. Unless you think that I'm making this up, just look at our, 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 our altar baba. Just look at Rus. This was the greatness of Rus. And I think if we tie this back together, this I'll conclude. I think this is the avoda of Shavuos. You remember again, we, went, we started again 50 minutes ago. We spoke about again, why do we read Rus on Shavuos? What does Megillah have to do on Shavuos? So again, story of conversion, story of suffering, Yartzad of David HaMelech. I think it's even simpler. What we celebrate on Shavuos is we receive Torah. What is Torah? Torah represents the toolkit. It's the toolbox for successful living. Everything I need to be successful in life is contained in Torah. Torah teaches me how to forge a proper relationship with other people. Torah teaches me how to forge a proper relationship with God. Torah teaches me how to forge a proper relationship with myself. Torah teaches me to have goals. Torah teaches me to have aspirations. 
but you know, what happens? You could have the best tools sitting in your toolbox, but if you don't know how to use them, they mean absolutely nothing. You could have the most beautiful Torah with the entire toolbox of spiritual and personalistic success. But if I don't internalize the Rus behavior, if I don't become a Rus, if I don't become the kind of person who sets my eyes on a finish line, who sets my sights on a goal, and just bow my head and plow forward, and don't get distracted, and don't get derailed, and I, but what about this one, and what about that one, and this hurt, and that, this, okay, all legitimate, move forward, move forward. Without that Rus-like dedication to the accomplishment and actualization of our goals, dreams, and aspirations, you could have all the tools of Torah in the world, but you can't build anything. And I think this is why we read Megillas Rus on Shavuos. Shavuos celebrates that we get our toolkit and Megillas Rus teaches us how to make it come alive. And this is why there's no external mitzvos on Shavuos. There's no external mitzvos, right? Because think about it, aside from your cheesecake, what are you supposed to think about on Shavuos? What are you supposed to think about? One simple, what are you supposed to think about? What do I want to accomplish in life? I, got, I have Torah, so I have the spiritual blueprint for success. A God has given me the greatest gift to allow me to be successful in life. Now, what does success look like? What do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? And by the way, I want, I want to point out, you know, sometimes we speak about things like this, people think like we're talking about like grand, amazing things, right? By the way, sometimes the greatest life accomplishments are the little things that no one knows about but you. Maybe I have a struggle. I struggle with a particular character trait. I struggle with a particular behavior. A person struggles with an addiction. A person struggles with a toxic relationship. A person struggles. We all have our struggles. Sometimes the greatest accomplishment is finding the courage to overcome those things that are just holding you back. No one else ever knows about it. No one else should ever know about it. That's between me and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and maybe again my loved ones. Whatever the accomplishment is, the Avodah of Shavuos is now Mazel Tov. You got your Torah toolkit. Anything and everything you need to be successful is contained. As the Gemara says, Hafach Ba, Bahafach Ba, Dekula Ba. Talking about Torah. Turn it over, turn it over, because everything is in it. And Rus comes along and teaches me, Choose a goal, choose a destination, choose a finish line. Get rid of your shackles because you are in charge of you and make something great happen. That's our Avodah Shavuos. So we should be Zochem Yerz Hashem that as we celebrate this Yom Tiv, and now hopefully you have a little bit of time to think about this in advance of Yom Tiv as well, that first of all, on the Yom Tov of Shuas, we should take the time to really appreciate that, that which we have. You know, we are, we are so profoundly fortunate to have a moral compass in a world that so often suffers from moral decay. And that if we just hold on to it, if we just hold on to it, we could find a way and navigate through all the complexities and difficulties of life. But each of us in our own way has to become a Rus, has to unshackle ourselves Decide where we want to go, what we want to be, bow our head, and full steam ahead. Don't get distracted. 
Don't get derailed. Find the Rus-like courage to accomplish the things that are important to you, recognizing that in the pursuit of some accomplishments, it may have to sacrifice other things as well. But hopefully the accomplishments we choose, the goals we choose, the dreams that we dream are worth it. We should be zochet to appreciate. We should be zochet to become a Rus. We should be zochet to a beautiful Shavuos. Have a wonderful evening, everyone.